1: With income disparity at the center of the presidential campaign, our show today looks at the opportunity to build an economy that is clean and inclusive. For more than a century, fossil fuels helped lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and propelled economic growth. But in the recent Paris climate deal, 195 countries agreed to move away from fossil fuels in coming decades. Remains to be seen if the emerging green economy will be more equitable and inclusive than the brown economy, which often concentrates pollution in poor communities of color. Will low-income and immigrant families be left behind in the move to solar panels, electric cars, and organic strawberries? Will poor neighborhoods be the first to be abandoned when rising seas start flooding barrier streets more frequently? This hour we'll talk about these and other questions of climate equity, with our live audience at the commonwealth club in san francisco our program today is generously underwritten by the san francisco foundation and the seed fund we're pleased to have with us three experts on environmental justice manuel pastor is director of the program for environmental and regional equity at the university of southern california mia yoshitani is executive director of the asia pacific environmental network which serves immigrant communities And Vien Truong is national director of Green for All, an advocacy group based in Oakland. Please welcome them to Climate One. (laughs) Vien Truong, let's begin with you. Uh, Tell us your story, how you came as an immigrant from Vietnam to an activist in Oakland.
0: I'm the youngest of 11 kids. And uh, my mom was pregnant with me, nine months pregnant, when she got in a boat with all of us and my dad, and my grandma, to get the 500 miles from Vietnam to Macau. Uh, I ended up being born, actually, once we got into a refugee camp. And that's why I didn't have citizenship for a long time. We ended up going to uh, Portland, Oregon, where we worked as migrant farm workers for many years, picking snow peas and strawberries, as people do. Uh, My mom strapped me on the back. That's what we did back in the day, and probably would have stayed there forever if it wasn't for the fact that my grandma was starting to get dementia. So we ended up moving to Oakland, where my family became sweatshop workers for 15 years. My parents, who didn't speak Chinese, I mean, who didn't speak English, only spoke Chinese. And so for me, that is what I think of when I think of the work that we're doing, It's about people who've been displaced for whatever reason. It's about people who are literally sweating away in inhumane conditions out in the farmlands. It's about people who have no access to a decent job, no access to health care. And what does it mean when climate change aggravates all of the problems that they're going through?
1: Quite a story. Uh, Manuel Pastor, you were uh, a professor in Los Angeles, and you went on a toxic tour. You... What were you think about environmentalism, and how did that change your views of environmentalism as a more core issue for you?
3: Um, you know, I came to environmental justice in an interesting way, and it actually makes me think about Occidental College. Uh, colleague Jim Sad and I had two great students who wanted to work for us, but also wanted to do a study. They said of environmental justice—that is, the fact that there are disparities in terms of exposures and proximity to hazards uh, for communities of color in Los Angeles. And we said, well, fine, you can work for us, but you've got to do that on the side because we're not sure how that's going to play out. So they wound up uh, doing this. This was in the 1990s. Uh, and now you could use a GPS device on your phone, but then they had to carry around big uh, blocks and find out where these facilities were and map them and look at hazards. And they were off doing their work. And then one day I opened up the L.A. Times And there was an article above the fold on the first page saying, Occidental College Study Alleges Environmental Racism. At which point, Jim and I thought, we'd better start supervising our students. Um, (laughs) Because it turned out that uh, they had talked to the press about this, and it triggered the city council, creating an environmental justice task force. And the first uh, object of business of which was to meet with the Occidental College researchers. So we said, well, can you wait a few weeks? And we went back and kind of looked at the study and fixed it up. And it sort of uh, caught the attention of the press caught the attention of policymakers, and it t- caught the attention of a sort of constellation of fantastic community organizers who are working on this issue. And for, like, the last 15 years, I've been doing research on environmental justice uh, in concert with these community-based organizations represented here. Uh, the thing that's been interesting, and one of the reasons why I got into it, is because I think that the environmental movement has done a really good job of convincing people that everyone has the right to clean air, uh, that children have the right to be able to not be affected by asthma from pollution, etc. and it seems to me like we need to broaden that concept of the environment because everybody's also got the right to a good school. They've got the right to access to employment. They've got the right to be able to uh, enjoy themselves and realize their opportunities. So for me, environmental justice, it's important in and of itself, but it's also a way to get people to understand that there's a broader social and economic environment that we have to make sure that people have access to.
1: Thank you. Uh, Mia Yoshitani, you also started as a youth advocate. Tell us your story, how you came to be where you are now as an advocate.
2: I was probably one of those annoying students (laughs) (laughs) similar to yours. But I just wanted to say first that um, it's great to be up on stage with two of my absolute heroes in the movement, um, contributing so much to this work. I, yeah I started as a student organizer, kind of making trouble on campuses, and I think there are three things that happened um, while I was at university that really kind of influenced the direction. One was uh, the war the war in the in the Gulf that um, so i 'm dating myself. this is the first one. Um, this was uh, clearly a, a war for oil and, a, and you know a, a war that kind of demonstrates how um, the, the power of the fossil fuel industry um, as well as um, where uh, politics and race actually intersect. Um, there was also the Rodney King uprising that happened at that same time while I was on campus. And these two things were really influential to me in how I kind of saw the um, integration of of poverty, of pollution, and of political voice, too. And then I'd say the third thing was while I was a student, I was exposed to um, a a seminal environmental justice study by uh, Dr. Robert Bullard that was called Toxic Waste and Race, and it basically demonstrated what you're talking about, that there is um, whatever metrics you use when you uh, look at proximity to um, hazardous waste sites, this was the first study, um, that race was the number one factor, no matter... uh, what income level mm-hmm. is actually, you were much more likely to, whether you're African-American or Latino or Asian-American you were or Native American, you're likely to live closer to um, hazardous waste that would, uh, or hazardous sites um, that would affect your health and your um, economic outcomes, um, whether or not you were middle income or poor. And And the fact that race was the number one issue just really Mm -hmm. was a defining um, kind of understanding for me about what needed to be built in the movement to actually address this.
1: Trung, I learned some things preparing for this program, and one is that the uh, opinions of African-American and Latino voters in California and their interest, how they rank climate change as a concern, and their willingness to pay more for solutions. Tell us about that opinion.
0: That's right, and there's a survey that Greenfraud did with NRDC that showed that people of color across the board understand the importance of climate change to their lives and are willing to actually invest in solutions that mitigates the impacts and provides the long-term benefits in their communities. Not only that, not only do they understand the immediate benefits, we actually have to tap into the fact that they are a political power that is uh, under-understood. So when we talk about the importance of engaging communities of color, it's about how do we win more climate... policies, more climate solutions. Prop 23 in California was a bright example of when we actually do that well, what can actually happen. In 2010, a couple of oil uh, companies came out and bankrolled a proposition to push back on our landmark policy, AB 32. A number of organizations came together, including APAN, including Roger Kim, who's in the audience today, uh, and Green Lightning Institute, Coming together, Ella Baker Center, working on how do we actually engage voters of color? How do we actually make sure that they're turning out the polls? And not only did they defeat, along with the other uh, organizations, not only did they help to turn out and defeat the oil proposition, but 70% of the voters of color who came out actually voted more progressively across the ballot and was uh, vitally credited for helping to get Governor Brown and uh, Senator Boxer their seats back against meg whitman and carly fiorina who were you know quite wealthy and bankrupt their own campaigns
1: manuel pastor this goes against the the image often that climate change is a luxury issue for white people who are comfortable and can think about polar bears and glaciers which are just far away for many people
3: yeah it's striking i think when people think about who cares about climate change what they imagine is a sort of thin you know a white uh, hipster, in spandex, fresh off their bicycle, sort of tossing granola over their shoulder as they walk along. Uh, but in fact, what the polling, and there are a few of them in the audience, god <laughs> and God bless you. Uh, but what the polling data shows, and by the way, this is from the Public Policy Institute of California, and they've shown it for about the last seven years. In the USC polling, which I uh, participated in, we found pretty much the same results. Mm-hmm. But in the last poll, when asked whether... Climate change was a very serious concern, one that you were willing to address even if it involved economic costs and there can be economic benefits. Only 43% of non-Hispanic whites in the state of California said it was a very serious concern. 63% 63% of Latinos said it was a very serious concern, 57% of African Americans, uh, and uh, 54% of Asian Pacific Islanders. So people of color across the board are actually more concerned about this, and so it's, it's less the, the bicyclist in spandex and more the immigrant woman who lives near a refinery in Wilmington who's kind of facing the daily Uh, Ravages of pollution uh, from those who are emitting greenhouse gas emissions and the co pollutants. And by the way, this also holds for income. In the same poll, what the Public Policy Institute of California tells us is that 61 percent of those making less than $40,000 a year consider climate change a very serious issue. Only 45% of those making more than $80,000 a year consider this a very serious issue. Those people who are on the front lines of what you were talking about in terms of this overburdening of multiple hazards are aware that this is a crisis that needs to be dealt with, and that's the political constituency that we need to keep in mind as we're mobilizing a broad uh, group of people who are concerned about these issues.
1: But Mia Yoshitani, a lot of the solutions, how people can directly personally affect climate change, are consumer actions. What do I eat? What do I buy? Buying organic Getting solar, a plug-in car—are those accessible and available to the communities that Manuel Pastor is talking about?
2: Well, that's what we're—that's what we're led to believe. That's what we're told about the sort of the—that's the main environmental messages that we get. That is all about. Is so a it, myth. It's—it's it's about you personally. What we can do is actually um, limited to your ability to change a light bulb, your ability to uh, buy a new hybrid, or your ability to to buy solar panels and put them on your house. And really, um, that is, that is, uh, it's not a myth that those things help, <laughs> but what is a myth is what is going to lead to the transformation that's actually needed to address both the atmospheric causes of climate change and the, the local impacts of, uh, that people on the front lines are, are, are living with. And actually the economic transformation that's both an opportunity and that must happen in order for us to address those problems. So it's a myth. So this transformation is not going to happen through buying cars and buying light bulbs. This transformation is actually going to have to be, you know, it's policy on the one side. But mostly it's about putting people back in the center. Putting people back in the center of what they, what their real hopes and dreams are for their for their future. This is nothing less than um, the the future that we are actually fighting the most have the most longing for. This is this is not about light bulbs. This is about um, what are what we want the most for our children, which is you know health. It's access to good jobs. It's it's the ability of people to make decisions that are most important in their lives. And it's nothing less than that.
1: Mia Yoshitani is with the Asia-Pacific Environmental Network. We're talking about climate equity at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Manuel Pastor, is this about wealth distribution? We have a a leading candidate for president right now who's talking about that.
3: I think you probably have every candidate talking about it because the extremes of wealth in uh, the United States have gotten uh, so sharp. And it's particularly true in California. In 1969, California was essentially in the middle of the pack uh, in terms of states uh, ranked by their inequality measures. Uh, now California is the fourth most unequal state in the country, uh, outpacing such paragons of progressive virtue as Alabama and Mississippi, uh, places we've always looked to as beacons of social justice. <laughs> uh, so so part of this is the maldistribution of uh, wealth. But as Swamia was talking about earlier, it's also a maldistribution of the environmental hazards and the environmental amenities. Uh, We've got communities of color that, you know, and it's striking. In the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. for example, an African-American family making one more than $100,000 a year has a higher likelihood of living near a toxic emitter than a white family making $20,000 a year. So people tend to think this is really about income, mm-hmm. but it's also about race and the way that that plays out in the political power uh, system. And so I think that we need to address also this environmental disparity, which you know winds up uh, having a long-term impacts as well on children, their ability to learn, their ability to do well in schools, their ability to be healthy. So this is a a crisis that's an intergenerational crisis. So equity is about income. Equity is about race. Equity is about environmental exposures. And equity is about intergenerational equity, whether those of us in this generation are going to make the choices now, not just the individual choices, but the hard policy choices that are going to leave a better planet for the next generation.
1: So you have a paper coming out later this year uh, about it, whether environmental justice and equity is good for white folks. Is that true?
3: Um, well, yeah. I mean, i got to say, we have some friends who wrote the first version of this pretty early, and they used the title, which is... Uh, like one that I almost resent because it's such a good title, which is, Is Environmental Justice Good for White Folks? Uh, And essentially what they did was find out that those places where there's more environmental disparity, there's just more environmental hazards overall. When people think they can put the burdens in someone else's backyard, you just get more of them. Our innovation is that we've looked at a wide uh, array of the literature and found that this is a very uh, constant theme in the literature, that environmental disparity leads to an increase in environmental inequality, leads to a decrease in environmental quality. And we've also now looked at the change over time. And those places that have been more disparate in terms of their hazards and in terms of their air wind up improving their environment less over time. So I think what this whole panel would probably agree to, is that climate equity is not a special interest issue. It's at the center of what we need to do to address the climate crisis because it's about what will put us all into the common ground to be able to uh, address this crisis, and it's about mobilizing those political constituencies that can make a difference when we come up against the oil companies that are trying to retard the progress that the state of California is making. Those two oil companies that put out Proposition 23 also happen to rank in the top eight of the emitters in California in terms of their racially disparate impacts. So there's a coincidence here that I think is, well, not a coincidence.
1: Mia Yoshitani, you also work with uh, immigrants who have a particular perspective on climate change because of where they've come from. Tell us about how immigrants see climate change uh, both here in the United States and their, their home country.
2: Well, as, we were, as has been mentioned here already, that um, the Asian-American and Pacific Islander communities in California, and I believe across the country, if you do the polling, are, like we were talking about before, you know, are, are the people who actually care about uh, these policy outcomes. They really want to see um, something done on climate immediately. They're willing to pay more in taxes for it. Um, they think it is one of the, the most important. They put it as a primary issue, one of the biggest issues facing their families. And I do think that's, that's not a coincidence. Um, when, I mean, Vien told her, her story, and this is a, a lot of the members in our organization, a lot of the community members have very similar stories. Um, so one, they are connected. This is not a, not just a local issue for them, um, they really understand without being told the international connection. And they understand that what is happening to them here is happening to their families back in their home countries. And whether or not they were forced to move from those countries out from war or being displaced or were climate refugees, um, they understand that they're connected um, to, to the outcomes here as well as there. Um, and so... that. It, 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 it puts them at um, an advantage of being able to actually understand the, the greater issues and how it's connected to the global economy, um, a, as well as a whole bunch of other issues. And, and also, I think that so the refugees that we have been working with, the refugee community, the Laotian refugee community in Richmond that we've been um, organizing in for over two decades, um, that community, there's a fence line community to the Chevron refinery. They came as refugees um, to the United States after living in, in uh, refugee camps in Thailand for over a decade, um, and they come here out of, uh, out of uh, decades of war and to be mm-hmm. um, exposed to some of the most highly toxic chemicals so there's um, they it's in the air they breathe. It's uh, in the soil that they plant their their vegetables in. Um, and so it's, it's completely, it surrounds them, and they, they have a deep connection to how cleaning up the air, uh, reducing climate pollutants, is actually going to bring healthier outcomes for their families. You
3: know, just, just, to, Pastor. just a quick footnote on that. In the polling that we did uh, on this issue, uh, we oversampled Latinos, and then we all sampled in Spanish to give people a choice of what language. And so not only were Latinos more generally concerned about climate change, but it was the folks who chose to take the interview in Spanish who were even more concerned. Mm-hmm. Those are presumably the immigrants. So it really adds more validity to what you're saying.
2: And we, we have the same outcomes when we call people on the phone across the state about these issues.
1: Vientrong, let's talk about some of the the positive stories. Where are things getting cleaner? Where are things getting better? Because environmentalism is often about what's broken. Where are some positive stories, things getting cleaner and perhaps more equitable?
0: Uh, I want to touch on that, but I want to circle back to what Mia was talking about earlier about the importance of us understanding that we need to move from The personal responsibility, moving from a a narrative of we individually are responsible for this problem to moving towards uh, not only institutions having to clean up their act and doing right, but now having to deal with and tackle systemic problems. And the only way we're going to get there is if we're actually working together to understand the interconnectedness of our different ethnic communities black, brown, Asian communities. How do we actually understand that this is not just about one household, but about the fact that my home in one area is connected to uh, one across the globe from ourselves? And once we begin understanding that there's, there's a unique tie Behind all of this, there's a cause, right? Because I I want to understand what is the most elegant solution that we actually can get to. And there is one cause. We're beginning to prioritize profits over people and planet at a speed and a rate that is dehumanizing across the globe. And that has caused us to blow up our mountains for coals. That has caused us to frack in people's backyards contaminating drinking water that has caused us to have a race to the bottom for labor, causing cheap jobs with no career pathways. It has caused us to um, prioritize profits in our production, which has caused companies to pollute our air and put, put waste in our communities, literally next to our home. People are actually drowning in waste, and we need to tackle that issue not only by saying what we're against, but what I love Mia's quote in Naomi Klein's book, and I I have it in front of me because I think it is one of the most inspiring things. Um, And she she really is my hero, so it's such an honor to be here. Um, she talks about how this is not about what we're fighting against, but what we're fighting for. Once we understand that this is about fighting for a new energy system, fighting for a new democracy, fighting for a new way that we relate to one another as sisters and brothers, how do we actually create a new relation to our planet? How do we actually create a new economy? And that is what is at stake here. So it is not about the world we're actually headed towards, and it's dismal, it can be, but what is it that we actually want to create? You know, One of the things that we got to work together on is a law in California called SB 535, and uh, led by a Latino legislator, one of the greenest state legislators I've ever seen in the country, who said, let's make sure polluters not only pay, but pay and invest in the communities hurt most. And it has gone to so many programs, including to free solar for families who could never afford it. Fresno, one of the poorest and most polluted communities in the country, received a number of these free solar panels for their households. One woman named Maria Zavala that we got to meet in an interview, she was a new widow of a few years. She got a son, teenage son, in and out of trouble. Uh, her sister-in-law had actually passed a few months before we met her out of pollution-related illnesses. And she heard about this program for free solar. She applied and got a free solar panel and saw it on her rooftop. And her average energy bill went from $200 a month to $1.50. Just a little over the cost of a soda, right? But what that actually means is somebody got a job putting the solar on her rooftop. The refinery that was cranking out this dirty energy actually cranked out a little less energy. And the community that lived around it got to breathe a little better. And all of our health got to be improved. And Maria got to save $200 a month that she now gets to invest in the local economy of Fresno. So that is the possibility of what we can do once we get this right.
1: Vien Trong is an environmental, as uh, a national director at Green for All, an advocacy group based in Oakland. We're talking about climate equity at Climate One. Uh, Manuel Prestor, what are some examples you see of where there is green growth, equitable growth in California?
3: Well, I think uh, we see a pretty burgeoning solar installation uh, industry in the solar panel installation industry in Southern California, which has had pretty good pipelines to uh, folks who are uh, coming from disadvantaged communities and through apprenticeship programs, and I think that's quite a positive. Uh, I think we've got a long way to go. One thing I'm very excited about, uh, and it's about uh, potentially green jobs but also greener communities, is an effort in uh, the city of Los Angeles called Clean Up, Green Up. And Clean Up, Green Up is... uh, an effort that was launched by multiple communities, but it's occurring in three. Uh, Wilmington, uh, a port community heavily polluted, Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles, intersected by many freeways, and Pacoima, which is in the San Fernando Valley, and people don't realize that the San Fernando Valley has undergone big demographic transition. Uh, The valley girl is now La Muchacha del Valle, uh, (laughs) because tremendous growth in the Latino community up there. Uh, And there used to be a lot of industries uh, up there, lots of pollution as well. And in these three communities, what folks have done is come together. And it's been a really interesting merger of research policy and organizing. We've worked with some of these folks, and they went out to their own communities and documented the hazards that were there and then used air monitors to record the level of air quality in their communities. And i got to say, Greg, as an academic, I guess there's many uh, times when I've You know, I can think of a research award I've gotten, right? But nothing's been more fulfilling than seeing an immigrant mother from Wilmington get up in front of the city council and testify about air quality in her community because she did the testing herself. Mm. And what out of that they did was develop a policy to create green zones. So in these three neighborhoods, and this is now moving forward, uh, there's going to be additional... Uh, technical support for the businesses to be able to clean up their processes and green up their processes, Uh, special regulatory attention in these communities. And this is a way of taking the most overexposed communities and helping to do local greening of the industries, local access to parks, local improvement in air quality, local improvement in terms of proximity to hazards. And when many people think Uh, about the uh, enormity of the problems we've got in terms of climate. We need to address them at a statewide level. We need to take personal responsibility. And it's heartening to watch communities really lead the effort with these sort of grassroots uh, demonstration projects.
1: Manuel Pastor is Director of the Program in Environmental and Regional Equity at the University of Southern California. Uh, I'd like to go to our lightning round, where we have a brief uh, question for each uh, of the speakers uh, first, for Emmanuel Pastor, uh, yes or no, California will elect a Latino governor in the next one or two gubernatorial elections? 2018 or 2022? C. Si. <laughs> Vien Trong, uh, you fled your home in Vietnam, and one day rising seas may force you to leave your home in the Oakland flatlands.
0: Uh. <laughs> Maybe, yes.
1: Maybe. Uh, Mia Yoshitani, the barrier doesn't have enough money to protect every neighborhood from rising tides. Some neighborhoods will be abandoned and others will be protected.
2: No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, Mia Yoshitani, climate change is like sex and politics. You sometimes choose not to talk about it in polite company.
2: Oh, not me. I always <laughs> talk about <laughs> all three.
1: Trung, some of your liberal friends suffer from climate hysteria.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Last one for Manuel Pastor. You are a social scientist. That means you are a scientist with social skills.
3: Uh, That is true, and that's why in this recent video from Spotlight California, I've been labeled a party scientist or the fiesta scientist.
1: (laughs) Wasn't that way when I was in your class, but okay. Um, (laughs) um, Sorry. Um, I've matured, Greg. That's that's the end of our lightning round. How would they do? I think they did pretty well. Um.
0: And now, here's a climate one minute. As our speakers agree, communities of color have just as much at stake in the environmental fight, if not more, than white, middle-class, highly educated consumers. But until recently, they've been largely overlooked by the green movement. Adriana Quintero of the Natural Resources Defense Council says the age of environmental elitism is over and it's time for a reboot.
4: At this point, what we have to do is really start to change the conversation. And so that's one of the things that I've really been working at at NRDC. How can we change the conversation so that we are actually talking in a voice that's much more inclusive, in a way that people can understand and relate it to their lives, not simply, are you driving your Prius to Whole Foods and, you know, buying your $12 light bulb? That's out of reach for many people, even for young people, frankly. So if we, we see the, the risk of continuing to speak in those terms, and we see the opportunity and the need to truly mobilize communities and allow them to step in and speak their story. Tell us your story. Tell us why it's important to you, whether it's because you grew up in a very polluted neighborhood or because you really believe that our country can do it. Whatever part of the spectrum you fall on, it's important for us to make sure that those voices are heard by our decision makers. We want the majority of voices to be diverse, because otherwise it's too easy to simply write it off as a white elitist movement, we're never going to succeed that way. And right now, I really believe that the environmental movement, the mainstream environmental movement, has that squarely in their sights and we're ready to make a change.
0: Adriana Quintero, Senior Attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council, speaking at Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club.
1: We're talking about climate equity at Climate One with Manuel Pratt-Store, director of the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity at the University of Southern California. Also, Mia Yoshitani, executive director of the Asia-Pacific Environmental Network. And Vien Trong with Green for All. We can't talk about environmental justice in this country without talking about Flint, Michigan. Uh, so, Professor Pastor, I'd like to hear you on, on Flint and what that means to you. Just the fact, uh, a personal confession, I guess, I was sitting here with the governor of Michigan in September, uh, September, October, before this broke. I wish I'd known about it. I certainly would have asked him about that. Uh, but the angry, the country got pretty darn mad about that. What do you, what do you make of that episode?
3: You know, I think, uh, I hope that this doesn't become another Katrina in the sense of getting people's attention briefly and then letting things go. I mean, when I think about Katrina, it's a classic case of environmental justice because if money had been spent to protect the lower ninth, you would have saved the entire city exactly the way in which equity could be good for the entire environment. Flint is a tremendous tragedy uh, because for what amounted to $100 a month, it turned out that a generation of children have been poisoned by lead, uh, because they didn't have the political power. They were literally disenfranchised because the city government was essentially in receivership, uh, and you know it's a population that's low income, uh, been devastated by industrialization, uh, largely African American at least relative to uh, Michigan standards. I think it's uh, it's a you know it's a just a tremendous tragedy. What I hope people realize is that that tragedy is being replicated in so many different locations, maybe not quite so extreme. But when you've got hazardous waste being spewed into communities, when you've got air quality with particulate matter and toxics that are creating asthma so that children are unable to concentrate and learn in school, you're causing kind of lighter version of the same problems that these young kids in Flint, Michigan, are going to face going forward. I hope that we find the political will to deal with Flint, Michigan, and I hope that we find the political will as a nation and a state to deal with this environmental disparity that affects so many children.
1: In Trung, there's a place in Southern California, a wealthy area, Porter Ranch, where there's a huge methane leak going on. Some people think it hasn't received much attention. Some people think it would have received... uh, Less if it was in a community of color. What do you make of Flint and Porter Ranch?
0: Uh, it's true. I think that what what I what it's telling for me is there's been a long time saying in media that if it bleeds, it leads, right? But what we have seen in the environmental movement and the environmental justice movement is that's not true. Mm -hmm. Because our communities have been bleeding and dying from a number of environmental problems, and it hasn't caught national attention. Flint was a perfect example. That story was public two years ago. And now we're learning about it. You know, the storage of gas underneath black and brown communities have been happening for years, and no one's been talking about it except when it just started happening um, in, a, in a different community. One of the projects that Greenlining Institute worked on was Sacramento natural gas storage. And it was very similar in the natural gas uh, leakage case except that this was a predominantly black and brown community. And they were going to store 8 billion cubic feet underneath this community that was historically black and brown. And the gas company actually went door to door weeks before Christmas and said, would you sign this waiver of all your rights so that we can store gas under your home? And this is gas that you can't actually smell. And if you don't sign your way, your rights, we will take it by eminent domain. It was a lie. But they did it, and a lot of families signed up for it. And then they turn around to the state of California. See, they, these residents don't mind. they care. They don't mind that, and they, they got gas cards out of it, and so therefore they're actually on board. What we're seeing is that we actually have to begin making sure that stories like Flint aren't continuing to happen. And not only do we address the water crisis in Flint, it's not enough that we just give, get Flint residents clean water. We actually have to begin addressing all of the issues that was around Flint and communities like Flint. So it's not just about clean water, but it's about how do we get a long-term sustainable economy in Flint? How do we have long-term solutions?
1: Uh, You uh, you know,
3: shortly after uh, that story of the young students leading me into the environmental justice world, uh, we began working with communities for a better environment, and we got a a big grant uh, to work together on environmental justice. And I remember I was very proud, so I told my aunt, my tia Dalia, I said, tia, tia, uh, we just got a big grant to work on environmental justice. You say, ay, Manuelito, I'm so proud. What is environmental justice? <laughs> and I said, well, that's the fact that hazards are disproportionately in low income and uh, c- communities of color. And uh, she looked at me, still proud, but kind of head and said, Manuelito, everyone knows that. Uh, LAUGHTER <laughs> I've spent a lifetime of researching the obvious, but that's not really the point of the story. <laughs> the point of the story is that communities know these issues. And it took only a couple of months before community members in Flint were saying there's a problem with the water and this ought to be addressed. And I think that one of the things we do sometimes as policymakers and researchers is not listen to what communities are saying that they know to be real and validating and trying to figure out what they're saying. If if Flint residents had been listened to early, the kind of lasting effects we're going to see for their children and the costs of that would have been evaded.
1: Uh, me and Yoshitani, I'd like to ask you about two specific projects here in the Bay Area. There's a possible coal terminal in Oakland that people are concerned about, coal dust affecting uh, people nearby, and also refineries that uh, have been... Potentially refining tar sands oil though with the, the low oil prices that may not be happening, but first coal
2: um, so Yeah, coal stupid idea <laughs> <laughs> Stupid idea in terms of a, an economic development plan for the 21st century How ridiculous is that that are that we're even contemplating coal export out of Oakland? when we have we have so many innovations and and uh, so many resources in terms of transforming local economies available to us in the state of California, the state has made some incredible progress um, in those areas, and we have this we have a legacy of of racism of of poverty and of pollution in Oakland that we are even it 's madness that we 're even considering. Um, that as uh, as a as a solution as a, as a job creator, which doesn 't even create jobs very many jobs in the first place um, but so we the the thing is it 's again it 's about listening to the communities the communities in Oakland have a vision for how they want to build resilient communities that have renewable energy that is actually owned by the community that is that creates wealth, circulates wealth, and generates wealth in the community, um, and for uh, a transition to uh, an economy that is not just um, providing alternative energy, but is providing an alternative and democratically controlled economy. And when we have that vision, why would we, why would we seek to bring coal through our, our streets and our neighbourhoods? It's just ridiculous.
1: And on uh, cheap oil, let me ask the economist up here. uh, Manuel Pastor, oil price has crashed. Uh, A lot of people never thought we'd see oil at the low prices that it is today. How is that affecting the transition from a brown economy to a green economy? All of a sudden, SUVs are more affordable, oil is cheap, uh, but that's also doing some things keeping tar sands in the ground and making some projects uneconomic.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the risk is that what is a short-term phenomenon gets thought to be a long-term phenomenon uh, because we will eventually run out of fossil fuels. And the fact that the price of oil directly has gone down doesn't mean that the price of all the side effects of fossil fuel consumption have gone down. So it may be a little bit cheaper for you to buy a gallon of gas, but it causes just as many health problems uh, for the communities living near refineries. Uh, causes just as many health problems for people living near freeways when there's too much traffic. And so I think one of the reasons why people have talked about uh, the cap-and-trade or a carbon fee or carbon tax system is because the costs of Oil are not fully recognized in the price of oil, those externalities that get paid for by other folks. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping, you know, one thing that I've been kind of actually somewhat inspired by is that even though the price of oil has fallen, you're still seeing business recognizing that alternative energy and renewable energy really is the wave of the long-term future. I'm actually kind of inspired by the proposal that President Obama just put out of taking advantage of the low price of oil to put a tax on oil so that we could actually use that to accelerate the transition, because right now with the fall in the price of oil, you could raise additional revenues without really incurring uh, heavy costs on you know, people were expecting to pay more. So it's an opportune time to actually try to begin to internalize what were externalities. Uh, I'd like to ask
1: Van Trung about some vulnerabilities in terms of climate impacts. Uh, we've been talking about the causes. There's also the impacts. And tell us about the communities that are most vulnerable to weather heat, severe weather, uh, et cetera, because it's certainly hot. Uh, 2015 was the hottest year on record. It's going to get hotter. That's going to affect people that don't have air conditioning, etc.
0: That's right. And so we're going to see people's health impacted. We're going to see people who are vulnerable, seniors and young people, especially those with um, asthma or other sensitivities, be aggravated even further, especially if they're living in uh, areas that are especially hot, um, like Fresno or Bakersfield, areas that are surrounded by pollution or by mountains that captures and keeps in the pollution. And I want to add this other thing to it. Not only are we individually more vulnerable, our entire communities are becoming more vulnerable. I recently had a chance to sit down with leaders from the Huma Nation, and they're in the Gulf Coast, for folks who are um, wondering, and their community, their land, is being submerged underwater at the rate of a football field every hour. Every hour, a football field of their land is going underwater. And so their entire community is vulnerable. And in 8 to 10 years, it's likely to be entirely underwater. And it's happening so quickly, they can't even build a seawall to protect it. And so they're going to have to redefine um, or relocate. And what's going to happen to their land, their culture, their history, their practices, and where are they going to go? And what's going to happen to the community that they move to? right we saw a lot of times when the only communities they can afford to move to are other communities already under stress and so when you bring in a new community on top of that if we don't facilitate that well and right it actually can create more tensions for the lack of resources and we have to begin figuring out how do we actually begin anticipating that in our solutions and our policies
1: Mia Yoshitana, you earlier said that all Bay Area neighborhoods would be protected. But the economic reality is that's going to be a lot of money. And if you saw some recent stories about Hoboken, New Jersey, there's lots of fights, and they're getting federal money about, no, we don't want this wall because it'll block my view. And and Hoboken, this little community, is is up in arms over how to protect themselves. That's one little town in New York, and we think about the whole bay area coastline which is about hundreds of miles of coastline how are we going to do it in the bay area protect all these communities some more vulnerable than others
2: I want to switch it up a little bit <clears throat> because we've been talking a lot about you know what are what are the impending disasters and I want to talk about the impending opportunities because that that's where we actually have the most promise to to be able to meet the transformation that needs to happen, whether it's a seawall or whether it's a new energy infrastructure or whether it's new water infrastructure, obviously in California we have to think about that. Um, because the crisis is so big, and we don't need any more um, evidence of how big the crisis is, <laughs> because it is a combined economic crisis, a combined um, ecological crisis, a, co- a combined uh, political crisis, a, de- a cri- crisis in our democracy. These are all happening at the same time. And with that incredible crisis, we are at a moment where we we are being forced to do something about this. We have to address climate change, and we have to address it the right way. We have to address address it equitably. The reason we have to address it equitably is because the support that's going to come from uh, communities of color that's needed to address climate is is coming from the communities that have the most support for those policies. And so we have to meet the real needs of those communities in order for all of us to be able to survive the climate crisis. So there's no way around it. It's that there is no way except for straight through to equity. And that offers us huge amounts of opportunities. When we divest all that we've been investing in the dirty energy economy... That frees up an enormous amount. When we ask, when not ask, when we demand that polluters actually pay for the for the full cost of pollution, there there's tremendous resources for us to actually build the the infrastructure and the local economies and um, the thriving, resilient neighborhoods. In the face of climate change that we actually need
1: so i want to pick up on polluter pays that that's a a, a accomplishment you've said here Um, but what but what personal responsibility those of us who knowingly drive uh, gasoline cars as i did today uh do i have any any personal responsibility it's easy to attack supply and big companies but what about personal responsibility for the choices we make
2: i think you have a greater personal responsibility to go out and vote for people who are going to be leaders in this transition, than you do to go buy a new car.
1: Manuel Pastor, personal responsibility versus saying it's the man, it's the, it's the big institutions, they're evil, and I don't I don't have any responsibility. I can just live my life the way I do.
3: I'm not sure that that's the right choice uh, because I don't think it's a question of pointing a finger at someone else and assuming that they're going to do the work. I think what Mia is saying is that our personal responsibility is to join with our neighbors, our friends, and our allies uh, to try to think about what the right policies are, to push for those policies to come into being, to try to grow the economy in a more equitable way.
1: Manuel Pastor is director of the Program for (laughs) Environmental and Regional Equity at University of Southern California. Mia Yoshitani is executive director of the Asia-Pacific Environmental Network. And we have Vian Trong from Green for All. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One.
4: Uh, Thank you very much for this very insightful communication that you've been talking about, about equity. I have a question. You know, the Supreme Court ruling that came down... Uh, to staying, basically staying, the ruling by the EPA around uh, coal-fired electricity plants. Can you comment on that, and what do you think is going to happen here? I was actually surprised.
1: Dianne you want to tackle that? Uh, uh, the Supreme Court blocking the president's key climate bill of a plan.
0: Yeah. Right. They're going to stay the implementation of the Clean Power Plan, and the court is suspected to hear it on June 2nd. In the meantime... People are wondering what's going to happen with the implementation of clean power plan. That said. We're seeing that it is very likely the court will move forward with uh, the implementation of the plan. They have made similar rulings in the past, or seeing that the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, has the authority to act to regulate carbon under the Clean Air Act, which is what the Clean Power Plan does. And so that this is a stay, is, it's not the best circumstance, but there's full confidence that this will continue moving forward.
1: And there's lots of states that are already kind of doing that, have uh, plans in place to go along, though a few states are, are suing the administration and not going along. Let's go to our next audience question. Welcome.
2: Hi. Uh, California is trying to continue to reduce its carbon emissions. And some of the representatives from California are saying that increased gasoline prices and other things that are done to reduce carbon emissions may hurt the economy that people that you're talking about will not be able to afford (coughs) higher gas prices or
1: may even lose their jobs because the economy will suffer. What do you say to that? Manuel Pastor?
3: Well, I'm sure we all have something to say about it. Um, I was struck by the debate uh, this last year about uh, SB 350, and in particular uh, the articulation by oil companies their deep concern about poor people, uh, which has been characteristic of their operations for years. So I was glad to see it sort of reaffirmed, Uh, i.e., this is hypocrisy of the most uh, egregious sort. Uh, It is true that if you raise the price of gas that it can be regressive. Uh, but if you use those funds to invest in public transit for low-income populations that use it, you can mitigate part of those effects. You can think about all sorts of ways to uh, move money back to communities from those sorts of things and not make it regressive. It's also not clear that it costs a lot of employment relative to trying to generate the kinds of employment that we might get in renewable uh, uh, energy industries in the kind of resilience and retrofitting uh, that we need to have, a lot of which is work that will, and Green for All has done great work on this, where there's a lot of entry-level positions for which there are then career ladders and trajectories uh, moving forward. So I think it's been an argument that's been sort of conveniently raised, and actually doesn't reflect what communities themselves are saying when you look at the polling numbers. Uh,
1: let 's move on to uh, uh, Vien Trong. I want to get you in on on green jobs. If we were talking about th- this conversation eight years ago, green jobs would be a big uh, big thrust of the conversation they didn 't quite pan out or fulfill some all the promise but, but let 's talk about green jobs
0: mm-hmm. Well, I want to touch a little bit on the last question before I get into green jobs. i 'll land there for sure. Um, <laughs> California's AB32 was passed in 2006, and since then, the economy has grown and continued to grow uh, in the green economy. And it's now, you know, globally, it's the seventh largest economy, one of the largest green uh, markets in the country. And what we're seeing is that these things are coming to create great green jobs, including what we saw in California out of SB535. Some of the programs that was created included this one, funding van pools for migrant farm workers. And at first blush, it may not seem like a big thing, but it created a new um, fleet of electric vans for access for migrant farm workers. And this was key in places in rural communities, like Huron, where if you are a family that lives in this city, right outside of Fresno, in order for you to take the bus system to go to Children's Hospital, and they have one of the highest rates of asthma in the country, it takes you three and a half hours on a bus to get to the children's hospital if your child has an asthma attack. So if that doesn't work, what you do is you go to the guy in the diner, and for $65 and the cost of his meal, he'll take you to the hospital and back. And so, given that, we met with a leader, a community leader in Huron, Ray Leon, who said, this is happening, how can you help fix it? And we created a program, a pilot program, that would fund electric van fleets that would then allow for the people in Huron and in Fresno to now be able to get into a van and get to the core Places that they need to go and to create essentially another system that is a complement to an existing public transportation system, which is key to areas that have a poor public transportation system or no public transportation at all. And that's what the green economy is beginning to look like and beginning to grow. The green jobs movement... Took a huge growth in 2008, 2010. We're not done. It didn't take two years to finish the green jobs movement. We're go- it's going to be continuing to grow, and we need your help to continue to help with it.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
0: Hi, compañeros. Lisa Hoyos with Climate Parents, and it's great panel, Greg. Given that you all run or Manuel, you help influence as a thought leader, um, social movement power what would you guys do and what you're thinking about how we counter the influence of fossil fuel money in politics?
1: Daniel Pastor?
3: Um, Well, I'm sure we all have something to say say about this. I mean, you know, I think we need to kind of really ask the question what agenda people have and to use that as a way to really build a movement going forward. And I did want to say two other things uh, because I know we're kind of coming to a close. One is, you know, the book that launched this thinking about the Green economy, the green collar economy by Van Jones, had the unfortunate uh, 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 event of uh, being published in October 2008. So what became sort of like one solution to the overall jobs crisis got thought of as the solution to the jobs crisis, right? So the fact that we haven't been completely transformed to a green economy with jobs bursting at the seams is thought of as a huge failure when, in fact, this is a sector that's been growing. Mm -hmm. And that's all that really was being said in that book. And what we're trying to say is it's part of a broader economy moving forward. And I want to say one other thing that I've learned from your founder, uh, Van Jones, who reminds us that when uh, Martin Luther King uh, marched uh, with everyone else on Washington and gave that famous speech, uh, that it was not called, I have an issue. Mm-hmm. It was called, I have a dream. And I think what Van meant by that is that those of us who've got an issue around transit, or around climate, or around economic equity, or around criminal justice... We need to realize that we need a dream of a more inclusive America, of a place where people work together, where we respect the planet as much as we respect each other, and that is that bigger dream that's going to weave together the social movements so that they don't get divided on these kind of small issues like what happened with SP three hundred and fifty.
1: We're coming to the end, but I've, we've overlooked one very important issue uh, today, and that is food. And so I want to ask Viện Trung about the importance of. Food access, food equity in terms of food is a big, production of food is a big climate issue, lots of food deserts in communities of color. So talk about food as an on-ramp and connecting it to the broader climate conversation. Food
0: brings us all to the table, and we all eat. Um, we all want healthy foods, and some communities don't have access to it. Places like Richmond doesn't even have one grocery store, one traditional grocery store serving the city, and we need to counter that. And we need to be get, And the great thing about food is that It brings together people in the ways that we need to see and replicate now, as a movement. In the last decade and a half, working in this work, seeing faith leaders, labor unions, HBCUs, civil rights groups, uh, immigrant rights groups, enviros, individuals coming together in a way that we haven't seen before. And our organizations have been at the forefront of bringing people together. And the key thing that we need to figure out now is how do we make sure we don't fall trap to oil companies who are trying to use a divide-and-conquer strategy to to make us think that there are communities of color out there who doesn't like this because polling has shown time after time that we are behind this. We're behind good climate solutions and the important thing for us to do now is to begin working in authentic solidarity and not in tokenism, not in coming to us and fighting for solutions or subsidies for other companies, but in really coming to our communities and say, how can we actually work together so that we can all win the planet and the vision and the, sol- and the future that we want to see.
1: We have to end it there. That's Van Trong from Green for All. Other guests today at Climate One have been Mia Yoshitani from the Asia Pacific Environmental Network and Manuel Pastor, professor and director of the Environmental and Regional Equity Program at the University of Southern California. You can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle at Climate One. Podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available at climateone.org. I'd like to thank our audience here in the room at the Commonwealth Club and listening on air. Thank you all for coming and thanks to our guests. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer. Kelly Pennington is our director of audience engagement. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. The Commonwealth Club's CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy and environment.